This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Hello and welcome to Sex and Science Hour. Oh yeah, the best hour of everybody's week in my opinion. It's the best hour of my week so far. Mine too. Somehow we made it to episode two. Congratulations, Brian. Yet we went to number two. (laughs) That's right. Oh, I am Stephanie Murphy, by the way, and you are Brian Sovereign. Of course. And apparently we (laughs) chose some theme music that is the Soviet March, didn't we, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) Did you know this? Our theme music is the Soviet March. I I didn't realize it. Yeah, until we we listened to it a few times, or, you know, we were making sure the the show... had a good flow and after you know the theme gets really 8-bit music in general gets very catchy and the theme was was you know just playing over and over again in my head and i said wait a minute it's like this is james hannigan's soviet march you know and <laughs> yeah, you were saying i think i've heard this somewhere before wait a minute yeah. <laughs> it kind of just hit you and, and I th- you know what that's fine with me i think it's perfect what can you say? You know, we got some feedback about our music. Some of it was not so good. One person said that they felt like turning the show off every time they heard the theme music. But another person said they loved it. So I'm not sure what to do. I think we'll keep it because we like it. Right, Brian? I enjoy it. It's I so mean, catchy. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, anytime I go to the Kremlin, I usually hear. I mean, wait, that came out wrong. <laughs> we have to thank Roll Music. He's the person or she. I don't know the gender of Roll Music. Uh, but actually, that leads into our first story for tonight, but Roll Music is the person who composed our chip tunes that we use as our theme song in the music beds during the show. And speaking of gender, you can now choose a custom gender on Facebook, except it's not like so custom. You can't just make up anything you want, but right. you can choose from different options now other than just male and female. I heard there's like 50 options, though. That's that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. We had a friend who wanted to just write yes when asked his gender, it's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> or is that like the old joke when they ask you, like, uh, what is your, when, you know, like, yeah, what, what is, is your sex? sex? And yes, you say please. yes. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's kind of like that. So they don't let you fill in anything you want, but it is kind of a step up from just male or female because some people don't really feel like they fit in to male or female. And those are kind of, for some people, they apply, and for some people, they fit pretty well. I think myself included. I would, I'm would i pretty comfortable just identifying as female. Um, sure. But for some people, they really don't feel that they fit into that gender binary. So, Well, I have two points on it. One is that they didn't just go that far to where it's like, okay, we'll let you choose your gender. They actually said you can choose your pronoun, too. Yeah, that's so cool. So how Facebook is even going to interact with you. You know, because instead it could be them or they, you know, whichever, which which that's great. I think that goes a long way to making people feel comfortable if they're transgender or or any non-gender binary um, identity. But they probably do a better job at remembering what to call people than their actual friends might. (laughs) Because like sometimes people will be transgender and they'll be transitioning and their friends will screw up on what to call them. You know, they'll they'll ask them, (laughs) hey, can you call me? Uh, him or or her oh, yeah. or whatever, I, and the friends screw it up. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm a pretty conscious guy about that sort of thing, and it even happens to me. Yeah, where, where I will say him instead of her, and uh, it, it can be, you know, it, it can be an issue. So, I mean, that's great that Facebook is taking it so seriously. Sure. Well, I'm all for confusing the companies that try to market to people based on their gender and stuff like that. That the information sure. that's on their Facebook profile. People were saying 
you know, that Facebook is finally listening to feedback from their users about what they want to be able to put on their profile. But I actually don't think that's true because I read an article about this and it was basically spurred on by one of the engineers at Facebook who is transgender and she's transitioning right now. She's a trans woman and she had control over this feature basically. And so kind of implemented that. So they were avoiding an HR nightmare. Well, at least they weren't listening to feedback from their users. It's not like Facebook listens to you all of a sudden. No, no, no. I mean, and even if they did suddenly start listening, it's like, oh, 10 years later, now you're actually caring. Yeah. Uh, If they listened to people, they would, you'd be able to put voluntarist in your name without having your account suspended and having to show a government ID to get it back. That happened to a couple of people we know. Yeah, absolutely. And actually one other feature I want to mention quick that I, I really, I would have expected this to have happened before they did this one you know, where, where they allow you to choose your, you know, more than two genders, mm-hmm. uh, was relationship status. Polyamory is not an option. And there has been a, oh, yeah. a long standing, uh, a campaign to get that, uh, not, not just on Facebook on other social media too. Yeah. They're pretty standard with the relationship options that they put in. They do have one that says open relationship, right. but that doesn't really describe everybody no. who doesn't have a monogamous relationship, yeah. but they want to put something about it on Facebook. Right? Yeah. And I think they have, it's complicated too. Yeah. And but it's it, not always complicated. No, and you have but, more than one partner. But I just... think that comes off as insulting <laughs> to mm-hmm. say it's complicated. Mm-hmm. So that, that's like a tough one to, to, to use. So th- I, I actually, maybe this is a first step, but I, I don't think so. I really would have expected the relationship status to have been the one to grow instead of gender, but I'm glad it happened. I'm glad, believe me, I'm totally glad that this happened. I kind of wonder if you could get around that. I've never tried to do this, but I, I wonder if you could get around that by like if you say in on Facebook that you're in a relationship with somebody, do they automatically get listed as in a relationship with you or or can it be like a one way street? You know what I mean? Because uh, it can be a one way, but then there's a, a custom URL for for oh, you us. Facebook yeah, slash yeah. us yeah exactly oh, that scary. that will show even though the other person doesn't list it it's still going to show you two as uh, as being together right i was just wondering if it could kind of be like maybe like robert a highlands highlands uh concept of line marriage where moon is a harsh mistress yeah, yeah the book the moon is a harsh mistress yeah. where they had this thing called line marriage where basically i would marry brian and brian would marry sally and sally would marry susan and then you know it's like we're all in a line together so if you're in a polyamorous relationship and you want to put it on facebook perhaps you can put you're in a relationship with person a and person a is in a relationship with person b and person <laughs> b is in a relationship with the first person right i'm cool with that <laughs> All right. So speaking of hipsters who have non-traditional gender and relationship statuses on Facebook, Brian, did you know that Goodwill is going to be accepting Bitcoins? No, no way. (laughs) No, no, you're not buying it, huh? I don't buy it. You didn't like my segue or you just don't believe it? Great, great segue. But (laughs) I I don't I, I heard this story earlier this week and I was just like, that can't be true. Like, that doesn't even make sense for them to do that from a business standpoint. We both heard this story this week, and we saw the headline, and it said, Goodwill is going to be accepting Bitcoins. And I was like, that makes no sense. If somebody's going to Goodwill, you know, they're needy, they're they're trying to afford clothes, right? Why why would they have Bitcoins, right? Yeah, I mean, generally, and then what you said, what did you say? 
You said you were saying the thing about the hipsters. They're, oh, yeah. You're like, yeah. they're doing it for the hipsters. Yeah. You don't really need to shop there. Right. Maybe that's <laughs> the thing is, yeah, exactly. It would cater to the hipsters because it just, it didn't make any sense because, I mean, most people that go to Goodwill, you wouldn't expect to have, frankly, you know, smartphones or at least smartphones that could handle things well or yeah, they wouldn't sure. have unlimited data or something like that. It's just, it's a customer base where Bitcoin at this point in time makes no sense. Okay, and mm. I just I don't I don't really see even people that have Bitcoin now I don't really see them wanting to go. It's like oh well, Goodwill takes Bitcoin. I'm going to go support them. Uh, you know, I I think most people got involved in Bitcoin outside of maybe uh, libertarian issues. Uh, you know, as an investment, right? You know, so that they can buy the creme de la creme. Yeah, and then not they so don't they need go to go to, to Goodwill. Goodwill. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just didn't make any sense. Well, so the story was actually not quite accurate anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, we saw um, an update to the story where it was actually it got sort of put out there as Goodwill is going to be accepting Bitcoin. But what it really was, was the um, point of sale systems that they use mm -hmm. were integrating Bitcoin into their systems. So Goodwill would have the option to accept Bitcoin if they wanted to turn that feature on. But Goodwill actually came out and said that they had no plans to do that. So. Are they using soft touch? <laughs> No, it's it was another one. Um, it's called V uh, VMware or something like that. Okay, well V. Okay, so that that's a virtual machine. Okay. That they're so yeah, VMware can handle Revel. Any, Revel, that's the yeah, um, okay, terminals. Okay. All right, yeah. So that that can handle just about anything. So that's interesting. I guess at least the options there, so they're ready for the future. They're ready when the hipsters come through the door with their bitcoins. <laughs> <laughs> they won't have, they'll have to have Androids. They won't be using them on their Apple devices because ah. Apple yanks down Bitcoin apps. No, I mean, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Goodwill, well, that's the thing is that actually, you know, Bitcoin would seem to be going away from the hipsters or the hipsters are going to go away from Apple. And frankly, I don't think the hipsters are going to go away from Apple. Yeah, but, that's a fat chance, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but interestingly, Goodwill is is a company that runs a lot on franchisees. And so I wonder if franchisees would have the option. Again, I don't consider it good business sense to do it. You know, uh, I mean, what? because fine, it can be implemented in VMware, you know, in Revell, and that's great. But it's still a complex uh, setup, I think. And especially to train people to learn how to interact with it. Uh, I I just I don't think it makes business sense, but I wonder if individual in franchisees could choose to implement it because it's already in the software. Yeah, sure. I mean, that shouldn't be a problem if they could understand it. So cool. Well, I think there's a market for it, <laughs> at least the hipsters who shop at Goodwill. Uh, so, Brian, speaking of Bitcoin stuff and making business sense, you have a theory about Amazon that I wanted to talk about on the show. You don't think Amazon is ever going to accept Bitcoins. Is that right? Oh, well, I guess while we're talking about point-of-sale systems, yeah, this is a good point to bring up. Yeah. Um, Amazon, you know, th this is this is kind of the, the, the meme going around the internet is that, yes, if we get all these companies on board with, you know, with, with, uh, with Bitcoin, if we, you know, we have uh, Overstock.com, Tiger Direct, and if we just get a few more, you know, we, they're going to, then Amazon's just going to have to take Bitcoin. They won't, they'll have no choice. That's just totally untrue. Uh, they, they, Amazon has every choice in the world. Why? Because they are the only company, in my opinion, in the world that has a greater infrastructure than Bitcoin could have, even if Bitcoin was accepted by all these other companies. Amazon, yeah, yeah. 
Amazon would have the, they, they still would have the largest infrastructure on the face of the earth. Why is that? Okay. Cause it's not just, an, this is what I mentioned the point of sale systems. Can, uh, Amazon is going to convert Kindle fires into point of sale systems. Then okay. they'll be able to, ha- yeah, then you can have a $200 point of right. sale system, right? Right. So Amazon's entire backend software is going to be in brick and mortar stores now. They just took over everything. Okay. They have the biggest, one of the biggest sites on the internet. They have the biggest shopping experience on the internet. And now they're in stores. And so they could come up with their own, oh yeah, they could come up with their own coin. Okay. And that would automatically work in any place that had this Kindle Fire POS system, which again, a POS system as a Kindle Fire, that's all they're going to do is add a credit card reader on there. It's going to cost what, $300? The average POS system runs over a grand. Why wouldn't a company buy one of these things? Yeah, some companies already do that. Actually, they've got just like an iPad with a square device plugged in, which is a little yeah. credit card reader you plug into the headphone jack. Yeah. And then they're good to go and they don't have to pay thousands for a POS system. Yeah, 30 years from now, maybe Amazon will take it. But no, they don't have to take anything. They are going to take over uh, the entire retail space. Let us know what you think about that. I'm kind of curious to discuss that a little bit more, Brian. But we got to take a break right now. So there's more coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. Stay tuned. Hey, Brian, what's that funny sticker over your laptop webcam? I was trying to spy on you while you were in the shower, but now I can't. See, that's why I have it. And it's from EFF.org. EFF, what's that? It's the Electronic Frontier Foundation, totally donor-funded organization that fights for internet freedom, privacy. Wow, that sounds great. So EFF.org, I support internet freedom and privacy, and maybe you do too. Yeah, and you can support them with Bitcoin. The Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. Sex and Science Hour is part of the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, and we are so excited. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What's Bitcoin? What's Bitcoin? What's Bitcoin? Well, you'll have to listen to Let's Talk Bitcoin to find out. It's a twice-weekly podcast, and you can find it at letstalkbitcoin.com. Okay, I gotta know. Yeah, you really should probably get on that. It has a whole network? Yeah, we're part of it. How did I not know about this? You must have missed the memo that we were on their network. Anyway, now back to Sex and Science Hour. Welcome back to Sex and Science Hour, everybody. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I am Stephanie, and you are Brian, right? As always. Brian, we got some heat from our listeners in the last uh, show. We got some some responses. (laughs) Or, oh, no, this is like the bad heat. Well, I guess I better stop the cheering. Maybe I should should have booing instead. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much fun to play with these little sound effects. I'll try not to get totally distracted by them, but... uh, we do have an email address here on Sex and Science Hour. It's show at sexandsciencehour.com. And you can email us your questions, feedback, comments. We like to hear from you. Uh, and we did get a couple of emails from our first show. Yeah, right? we, got we got some, some email. Feedback from great, it, which was really cool. Yeah, because I practically begged for it at the end of the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, your call was answered, Brian. It was. Although we did get an email from somebody who I don't think quite uh, got our sense of humor. In the last show, there was a joke that we sort of cracked in passing at the beginning of the show. We were talking about using blood cells from people and turning them into stem cells and then using those to 3D print organs, which was pretty cool. And you made a joke about 
going to the Red Cross and donating your blood and then being able to print out a new liver or something like that. Right. And uh, I said, well, the Red Cross discriminates against gay people because they do. They ask you if you are a man. They'll ask you if you've ever had sex with a man since 1979. And yeah, they do turn down um, blood donors, not just gay men, but any man who has had sex with a man after 1979. And... I, we were just making a joke about it. You said, does it work on gay blood or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and I also asked about bisexual blood. I, and I, I put in the bisexual blood joke just to make sure, hey, come on, I'm kidding. Yeah, we yeah. we know obviously there's no difference between gay and straight blood. I thought yeah. that went without saying, but maybe we have to clarify it anyway. So we'll be a little more careful about explaining ourselves yes. <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, the person also kind of held our feet to the fire about um, we were talking about the local Bitcoins users who got entrapped basically in a police sting operation. And I guess we got to remember, we're not necessarily talking to libertarians on this show. We're used to talking to libertarians and people who kind of agree with us that, you know, uh, a right. lot of these crimes are just totally manufactured. Um, and the person said, well, you don't see a problem with it if the person was going to buy um stolen credit card numbers with Bitcoin. No, they weren't. This was completely made up. It was a sting operation. There were no stolen credit card numbers. Ergo, nobody was hurt. Right. It's a manufactured crime, just like the FBI claims to catch terrorists. And most of these people that they catch weren't terrorists before they got entrapped in these operations to catch terrorists. They basically manufactured terrorists and then they catch them and then they say, look, we caught a terrorist, which didn't exist before we gave them all the tools they would need to become a terrorist and encouraged them and told them to do it. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the person who was selling the Bitcoins to the Sting operative uh, is not responsible for what that person, whether he was a Sting operative or a real person, was going to do with those bitcoins. Right. I mean, once it's out of your hands, why is it your responsibility once you sell something to someone that to make sure that they don't use it for a nefarious purpose or a purpose that you don't like even? Right. Well, that, yeah, that's that's overall what I'm saying. But I mean, someone would say, well, what they tell you they're going to do with it, you, you know, you become uh, responsible for that. No, you don't. You have no idea when a person's serious. You have no idea. I mean, right? You just Are you don't responsible know. if they don't tell you what you're gonna, what they're gonna do with it? If it, if the person said, "I'm going to give it to my grandmother for her birthday," and then they went and bought, hired a hitman with it, are you then responsible for that? Are you supposed to interrogate them and make sure they're not going to do anything illegal with sure, it? Right. I mean, I mean, this is the case against Charlie Shrim. Yeah. You know, saying that he's responsible for what people did with bitcoins. Three people removed. You know, three parts removed from the whole thing. Speaking of people freaking out about Bitcoin things, Brian, did you get free Satoshis from the unknown spam marketer? I did. You did? I did. Tell me about that. Well, I, it, it worried me because I, I didn't understand exactly what was going on when it started happening. There were, you know, I'd heard other people saying that they were getting these, you know, just oddball Satoshis out of nowhere, two, three of them. And, uh, you know, I didn't know, like, I mean, my mind, you know, instantly went to a degree of paranoia, uh, because, you know, the whole action just doesn't make any sense. And I thought, oh, you know, I was like, what is this? Are, little, are they tagging addresses? You know, they being the powers that be. I, mean, I, <laughs> so, I don't know. So what happened this week for anybody who d wasn't aware of this was Bitcoin users were finding themselves receiving tiny microtransactions. So of, you know, one Satoshi, which is like the smallest possible fraction of a Bitcoin that you can send right now. And it's worth, you know, very little. Its value is like fractions of a penny, you know. Right. And somebody was sending little fractions of a Bitcoin to Bitcoin addresses 
And they were putting out all these transactions with no transaction fees. So most of them didn't go through on the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin network prioritizes transactions. And part of that is if the person includes a transaction fee, it will go through faster because the the miners who process Bitcoin transactions and create the Bitcoin network are choosing the transactions that are highest priority based on the fees and, and stuff like that. And there's a couple other things that go into it, too, but a big part is the fees. So. A lot of these small transactions didn't go through, but it kind of cluttered up the Bitcoin network and it freaked a lot of people out. And in the addresses that were sending the Bitcoins, they had the words enjoy Sochi, like the place where the Olympics is being held. So people were speculating, oh, it's the Russian government, they're marketing the Olympics or that it's the NSA and they're tagging everybody's Bitcoin addresses. And it may it, it was probably just as innocent as somebody trying to get out free email spam. This is like the equivalent of the Nigerian email scam for Bitcoin, sure. <laughs> except they can't do that. But what they did manage to do was generate a lot of alerts and uh, a lot of attention on the words that were in their addresses. You know, they they got uh, blockchain.info to send out email alerts to all their users who get an email whenever they're sent Bitcoins that uh, contain their, their messages in them. So I think it's just a new version of email spam Yeah, so it's pretty simple, pretty benign. Well, I mean, I don't know about benign. Maybe they have malicious intentions with it, but they can't do anything. Like if somebody somebody has your Bitcoin address, this is a really good thing to clear up because I actually got asked about this a few times. There was somebody that I knew from a a local Bitcoin meetup and he was freaked out. He's like, how does this person have my address? What are they doing? Are they going to steal my Bitcoins? No, they can't steal your Bitcoins. If somebody has your Bitcoin address, that's like them having your email address. They can send Bitcoins to you, just like they'd be able to send email to you if they had your email address. Right. But they can't move those coins out of the address unless they have your private keys, which supposedly only only you are supposed to have, you know, and they can't really get those unless they hack your wallet somehow. Right. So um, your coins are safe. All they can do is send you little Uh, dust Bitcoin transactions. And hey, maybe if you hang on to that Satoshi for 20 years, it'll be worth a million bucks or a thousand bucks or something like that, right? Yeah, if Max Kaiser has his way, it will. (laughs) Right. Uh, But for now, I think they're just trying to spam you. So there's no reason to freak out. I just just thought that was an interesting thing to bring up. It's kind of a creative attack, you know, trying to find ways to put little messages in Bitcoin transactions and send them out. Sure. You know, but something you might want to freak out about. I I start I read about this this week. I kind of already knew some of this, but sitting down might be really, really bad for you. Yeah, I've heard this. Um, there was an article that came out this week that said sitting is the new smoking. Like Ouch. it's that bad for you. And wow, I mean, I've had jobs before where I sat down all day and I did feel way unhealthy. All right, wait How about minute. you? Wait a minute. Is CVS going to stop selling chairs or are they going <laughs> to rip all the chairs out of the store? Maybe they are because they did <laughs> stop selling uh, tobacco products or announced that they were going to stop selling tobacco products. Um, but yeah, maybe that'll be the wave of the future, right? A lot of people are already embracing uh, standing desks. And actually, I have to brag because I started using a standing desk about, oh, almost seven years ago at this point. And it was great. I loved it. I used it. I I had a job for five years where I worked at uh, one place and I used a standing desk all day, never sat down. My coworkers looked at me like I was insane because it was a totally makeshift ghetto standing desk. And it was just a (laughs) pile of books stacked on top of each other that I put my laptop on. (laughs) Wow. 
So it was like really not a very nice standing desk, but it did the job and it kept me standing. And I felt great. Within the first couple of months of working there, I lost like 20 pounds uh, because before that I'd been sitting all day. Right. And it was just a lot more fun to work like that. You do get tired a little bit if you stand in one place, but you can have mats that you stand on that actually help with that if you're doing a standing desk. And also if you move around, it really doesn't um, bother. Well, it didn't bother me as much. And I also wore, I was like a super weirdo when I worked at this place because everybody would comment on my shoes. I wore the five finger shoes. Oh yeah. You know, I never wore heels. Individual toes. Yeah. Because, right. you know, heels aren't good for your back. They really like throw your entire body out of alignment. And I found it much more, um, comfortable to wear these five fingers and, you know, your feet get used to it after a while and it just feels good. <laughs> Sure. Well, I I think, I mean, a lot of our digital life and I'm not a Luddite and I'm not against, you know, our digital life, but a lot of our digital life really makes us very sedentary. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're used to so much more motion and to just to so much more activity. And so any little thing you can do, even like just standing up, uh, you know, I think would be just a tremendous help. Yeah. And speaking of health and fatigue, There's a study that came out recently about sleep and cancer risk, and I thought this was really interesting. You found this, right, Brian? Yeah, it was essentially saying that, you know, this this waking up in the middle of the night uh, and sometimes even staying awake, you know, say checking your smartphone for notifications or whatever, and maybe... We never do that, Brian. Right, yeah. (laughs) Nobody does that in this household. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, that, that 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 fragmented sleep, you know, would essentially lower your immune system and could, you know, lead to cancer uh, and a whole slew of things. Now, I found it interesting, though, because I uh, was under the impression that even up to just a couple hundred years ago, uh, historical evidence shows that, that humans, you know, regularly they would sleep for four hours, then they'd stay up for an hour or two, and then they'd sleep for another four hours. Right. I don't think this is talking about that because there is actually historical evidence that people did that sort of two phase sleep. Yeah. But I think what they're talking about is people who get woken up repeatedly during the night. And I kind of wonder about people who have young children, because it uh, seems was... like they get up multiple times during the night to take care of their kids. Right. Yeah. That's the first thought that came to my mind is, is that who that's, this is referencing? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what do you do about that? Well, it is a study that was done on mice. So, you know, mice are not humans, even though they are used a lot as research models because they're right. little and cheap to take care of and they reproduce like crazy. Um, <laughs> so but so take it with a grain of salt. But I do think it's really interesting that there is this connection between the immune system, which actually takes care of precancerous kind of t- lesions in the body and makes sure that they eaten up or zapped or whatever before they turn into a serious cancer and sleep. And of course, we know that the immune system is really affected by the quality of people's sleep. And so the more we can do to just sleep soundly through the night, the better, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's another thing we talked earlier about how, you know, how the digital life has made us so sedentary. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also kind of kept us awake, you know, uh, and yeah, people stay up way after the sun goes down. It used to be for a lot of human history that we would go to sleep like when it got dark. And do you ever notice this, Brian? I go camping a lot in the summer, go to camping festivals or whatever. Yeah. And I always notice that when it starts to get dark and usually it's around like nine or 10 o'clock PM, 
I feel really tired when I'm looking at a dark sky or maybe even a fire blazing. I start to get really sleepy. And normally if I'm at home and all the lights are on and I'm looking at blue lights on my phone and computer and mixing board and everything else, I don't feel tired at 10 p.m. I stay up until right. 1, 2, 3 we're on the self-employment schedule. So we stay up pretty late. <laughs> but, you know, we're able to do that because I think we're kept awake by a lot of these lights and these devices, you know? Yeah, there's there's some truth to that. There's the theory that the, the blue hue that a lot of these backlit screens, you know, project onto your eyes, uh, that that actually is like a signal of daylight, of daytime, and it keeps you up. Yes, your brain sees it and it thinks it's the day. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of software out there now, a lot of apps that are designed to remedy this problem. Well, like Flux and Glux, right? Flux, yeah, Flux. <laughs> and Twilight. Yeah, and Twilight. There's quite they, a few, they for pretty much your, any OS you want. They turn they your screen like reddish when it gets to be nighttime. So right. hopefully it mitigates that. But, but it's really hard to escape from bluish lights or just lights in general at night. I mean, it's almost like you can't get by without it. Yeah, it it seems that way, especially when we're switching to CFLs and LEDs. They don't help the matter either. Well, we can blame government for that, for trying to ban incandescent light bulbs. Although you can still get them. They're kind of contraband, but you can still get them, right? (laughs) Give me some contraband incandescent light bulbs. And this is Sex and Science Hour. There's more coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to our new show. Yay! Yeah, I mean... You already love it, you know. Hopefully. Hopefully. If we're doing our job, they love it. And if you love it, it would be great if you could help us spread the word because it is a new show. So not too many people have heard the good word of Sex and Science Hour. You know, maybe you could go around and like knock on some doors and say that you have some good news for people. Yeah. You don't have to carry a book for this either, but maybe that would help in a white shirt and tie. Yeah. You know, look presentable. Maybe you could carry around like a little tablet instead. Yeah. Help people subscribe to our podcast feed. Yeah. And just, you know, have you have you heard about sex and science hour that would be wonderful so yeah if you could just go ahead and do that sunday morning is the ideal time to be doing this and uh, we'd really appreciate it tell them to go to sexandsciencehour.com and it's really for their eternal salvation i mean you're really doing people a favor by doing this or you could just share it on social media right and we do appreciate it thank you so much and now back to the show Welcome back to Sex and Science Hour. Brian, you know, things are getting pretty serious in our relationship, and I'd like to talk to you about something, if you'll hear me out, will you? I'm scared. I want to know if you'll share an email address with me. Would you do that for me, Brian? Will you share my email address? No, <laughs> I won't. But, but Brian, it's a sign of true love. I mean, that's the really the only way that you can tell me that you love me is to share my email. Or maybe we could share a Facebook account. We can make one of those cute ones that says like Brian and Stephanie. What no. Do you think about that? Uh, no, no, no. Why are you running away? Why are you putting on your shoes? <laughs> where, where are you I gotta going? Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I am totally joking. Although I'm Brian, still here too. <laughs> I, I just realized that we actually do share an email address. <laughs> <laughs> and that it, that address would be show at sex and science hour dot com, <laughs> which, is the, which is the email address for this show. We don't share a personal email address. And I'm glad about that. I don't want to share a personal email address with you. Uh, emails and Facebook uh, email addresses and Facebook accounts, I believe, are meant for the smallest minority, which is the individual. <laughs> where, where does this question come from? What's 
Well, there's an article we came across this week that was titled, What is Love? Sharing Your Email Account. Well, now, this was based on some degree of statistics, I would assume. Yeah, it was going through a bunch of statistics about relationships and included among them were this idea that some people share email addresses and Facebook accounts and other stuff with each other online. And the author is Haley Sukiyama. She's writing for the Washington Post. Um, One of the statistics was that 27% of couples who are married or in a committed relationship share an email account. Wow. Two thirds of couples share the same passwords for one or more of their online accounts with their main squeeze. Uh, this maybe it's a generational thing, but this just strikes me really weird. I I don't want to share my email address with my partner. Thank you very much. It's kind of confusing too when you email somebody. Um, you know, maybe you would CC their partner, but right. it, you can CC their partner if you want them to read it. You know what I mean? You know, this, sorry, my email's attended for you, not not your other half, right? <laughs> you know, th- this is literally one of the key things to why there's such a ridiculous divorce rate. Uh, because so much of conventional relationships today, in my opinion, are based around the fact that you lose autonomy and individuality. And this is, I mean, this is nuts. Where And a relationship is supposed to be based on trust, right? Yeah, exactly. Not... And it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't strike me as a particularly trusting practice, right? Because no. it's like every email that my partner gets, I want to make sure that I can read it too. They're going to have no secrets from me. They're not going to be able to hide anything. If they make a new Facebook friend, they're going to be friends with both of us, right? Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. What about sharing a Bitcoin wallet with someone you're in a relationship with, Brian? I mean, before Bitcoin wallets and conventional wallets, you had, you know, the man has his wallet, a woman has her wallet in her purse. Well, there were a lot of people who used to say stuff about how you're not really married until you have a joint bank account or something. And you don't really trust your partner until you have that. So, you know, does that apply to Bitcoin wallets, too? I imagine there's people who feel that way. But uh... we actually do know somebody who shares a Bitcoin wallet with it's a husband and wife who share a Bitcoin wallet. He's working under the auspices that he doesn't want to worry about the money. You know, he wants her to worry about the money. Now, in, in Japan, this is commonplace. Like, this is how culture has worked for a long time, where, yeah. where the the woman of the house... Be my accountant. <laughs> yeah, the woman of the house is the accountant. And that's how he doesn't want to worry about it. When he needs something, he just says to her, I need this amount of money to do this. And he goes and does it. Uh, so in that case, I guess that works, but that's kind of different. Maybe it works for them, but... I'd rather manage my own money, but it is an issue of how are you going to have continuity if somebody dies and you want to leave them your money and you have a Bitcoin wallet that's so encrypted that only you can get to it, but you're gone, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I mean, I suppose a Bitcoin wallet would kind of solve that, or at least as they stand today, because there's no taxes, no one has to claim it, no one, uh, you know, no one has to close down the account. Right. But if nobody can access it, then that's a problem too. (laughs) Oh, agreed. Agreed. This article did say that it was a more common practice to share an email account or like a Facebook account uh, with older couples or people who have been in a relationship for more than 10 years, perhaps because these technologies were kind of limited when they got together. Well, see, now that that makes sense in that these same people are used to having a phone number shared, you know. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Sure. If you have a landline, you live with someone, you're going to share it with them. Sure. Right. Up until even 15 years ago, that was how it was done. You want to get in touch with me? Sure. You're going to call, you know, the home phone number. Do you remember in the 90s when 
you know, maybe you got a girl's phone number or something or a guy's phone number and you wanted to talk on the phone with them so you could flirt with them. But you would call them and like their mom might answer the phone or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, that just shows how much of a privacy decreasing practice it is or, you know, their mom could even like pick up one phone in the house and listen in on the conversation, perhaps. That happened right. to me a few times. For yeah, sure. I, I've definitely been there. <laughs> Everybody who grew up in the 90s remembers that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you, there is something to be said for a loss of individuality with these practices, right? Oh, if there's absolutely. No, if there's no way to get in touch with you and just you, do you like lose a little bit of you? Yeah, I, I think hands down, you know, if you don't have like your own kind of little little space, uh, I mean, I talk about this a lot. Like, I think even, you know, n- n- we're in a world now where, speaking of phones, where everybody has their own phone on them. And I think it's rude to look at another person's screen. You know, a phone is so private. Mm. Uh, it almost becomes like a little extension of your brain. <laughs> yeah, it really does. You know, it almost makes you transhuman in a way. I mean, sometimes people are even, you, you know, I mean, some of the apps that people use, they use to to check their uh you know, like some women use it to check their periods. Uh, I mean, whatever, you know, really, if if someone wants it to be very private stuff, you know, and, and it's almost, yeah, it, it is, it's rude to even look at that. So like to not have that degree of individuality, I think that's, that's a problem. There was another thing in this article that said the study looked at whether couples felt that technology had improved their emotional intimacy and actually more than 20% of the respondents said that they had felt uh, closer to their partner because of being in online or text message exchanges with them. Well, that's that's interesting because I've heard both sides of that too, mm. to where our technological age uh, has led to where after sex, you're instantly checking your notifications and you're not cuddling. <laughs> Is that a form of like emotional, your online self cuddling, getting attention from the world or interacting, connecting with people in some way. I mean, sure, but it's not with the person that you just had sex with. Right. Yeah. I think people might find that a problem. Some people, at least. Um, I definitely really like being able to, if we are apart for whatever reason, you and I are together in case people haven't figured that out. (laughs) We're a couple. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I really like if one of us is away somewhere, being able to text or chat each other, it feels like we're maybe in the same room, you know? Yeah, no, I I like that aspect of it. So it does allow for a closeness, a certain, uh, you know, attachment no matter where you are being in contact. You know, it's, it's hard. Like I remember back you know, in the 80s and 90s, looking at uh, adults that were in relationships but might have to be apart, like, you know, my dad would go on a business trip or something like that. And it would be hard, like you'd have to find his hotel room and call him at the hotel. You didn't, you didn't have cell phones, you know, you couldn't have a an email, you didn't, didn't just email each other. And it was just hard to get a hold of people. But now it's not. Now it's easy. And it can bring people closer. What about cyber sex? Remember cybersex? Oh, I'll never forget it. Oh, yeah. Chatting on AOL or Yahoo. Everybody did that. And, you know, now we have sexting. People can send pictures to each other. People oh, can have long distance relationships much more easily. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I mean, cybersex, of course, has a, a lot of advantages to that. You, you know, you could do things that. Do you ever you, feel nostalgia for cybersex, like the, the, the you know, AOL messenger or. All the whatever. time. Yes. All the time. <laughs> Yeah, there was something cool about it because you had to be really creative. You know, you had to really get 
you had to really reach someone's mind oh, in yeah. order to have good cyber sex. Like, yeah, you can type in, hey, baby, all you want, but that doesn't really turn anybody on just seeing that in text. You you really had to say stuff that was very creative. And you, you were writing a novel together yeah. in a very real sense. And there is something so... Uh, uh, I'll say soul revealing. I don't believe in the soul, but there's <laughs> right. something so, you know, so soul bearing about that act. So intimate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very intimate. And it's really, I've yet to find anything that exactly compares to that. Of course, normal sex is phenomenal, you know, but, but I mean, cyber sex really did have its unique flavors. Yeah. It's just different. It's a different experience and it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> Anyway, not to wax nostalgic, there are lots of great things you can do nowadays that are even more of a immersive experience than just chatting on Yahoo Messenger or whatever. Or ICQ. Or ICQ, yes. There was, there was also an aspect of connection, too, because the person had to be, at least at a certain point of the Internet, the person had to be sufficiently nerdy enough to figure out how to get on the Internet and find chat rooms and things like that. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Well, that's a whole other story because, yeah, back then in, in the 90, mid-90s, late 90s, you had to really, you know, the person, there was an instantaneous trust. You know, people are saying, you don't know who you're talking to and you're, and you're you know, uh, speaking in, in sexual tones and all that with yeah, this person. Yeah, but you at least know you have something in common, which is the interest in using the Internet. Right. There already was a degree of trust, though, because the person took the time to figure out the complexities of getting online. Speaking of uh, figuring out the complexities, uh, we received a listener email to show at sexandsciencehour.com asking us what books inform our sexual philosophy. I love that question. Yeah, he listed off a few uh, already. He did. He said, what I imagine in my head is something like it, it ranges from the Kama Sutra to the Kinsey Report to the Ethical Slut to Robert A. Heinlein. <laughs> and yeah, like that's pretty close. Yeah, yeah that, that covers. I mean, I don't know if we've really explained what our, our sexual philosophy is, but anyway, the, those authors and those there's works. There's no real name for it. No, but, there isn't. It's you know, just... there's definitely freedom mixed in there and individualism and sure. um, respect for personal autonomy and fun and pleasure. Consensuality. Consensual. Yes. Yeah. Pick the word. Yeah. Um, Intellectual yeah. sapiosexuality. Sapiosexual. It's one of my favorites, meaning that you're in love with the other person's intelligence, their mind. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, those those are all good. Uh, another book that was really formative for me was uh, Thy Neighbor's Wife by uh, Gay Talese. And that was that talked about, you know, like kind of sexual liberation. Sounds kind of biblical. Well, it kind of is because it's coming out of conservatism in the 50s uh -huh. and it's about American sexual kind of kind of the libertinism that came out of the 50s, not the 60s. This is before then. And it's a time this frame. This is like the beatnik poets and stuff. Yeah, it's it's a time frame not a lot of people know about because the yeah. 60s just seems so nuts, you know, to so many people historically. Yeah. Uh, well, t we watched this documentary series called How Sex Changed the World or something like that. And it was talking about how like the whole design of cars in the 50s was so teenagers could go and have sex in their cars. Yeah, everything was designed sexually. Uh, I mean, like the, the, the... It was all centered around that. Yeah, they had the, the Dagmar, yeah, right? The dag the, yeah, they were <laughs> It was to... named after this comedian who had these like pointy breasts. Right. And they had these things on the, the front of the car that were called, that's why it was called the Dagmar, because yeah, her exactly. name was Dagmar or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, so, you know, and there are some others like in the 70s, skip ahead to the 70s, Nancy Friday, uh, you know, she had her kind of seminal work with My Secret Garden. 
Yeah, that was um, some wacky stuff, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, I read that and it's like, okay, so this is what, you know, that was women writing into Nancy Friday, revealing to her what their actual fantasies were. And it's a very popular feminist work. Is that for real? Like yeah, they were totally actual true. real women writing to her and Nancy Friday is a woman too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a yeah, yeah, absolutely. She went to, in fact, she had a very unfortunate upbringing in where she went to an all girls school. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was. could be fun. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, in the 50s, I mean, who knows? So maybe that led to to a degree of her uh, fantasizing and wanting to write it down because she didn't want it to be seen as wrong, which, of course, American society at the time did. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a very popular work. Of course, then the other would be John Norman, who I don't I wouldn't necessarily say that I follow his sexual platitudes anymore, uh, but. You know, John Norman, when I was young, was really, he writes uh, what's called the the Gore series, G-O-R, uh, which is a very, very popular novel series. I mean, and they're still getting written today. Oh, there's like a whole subculture that goes with this. Yeah, huh? it's called the Gorean subculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wrote a book called Imaginative Sex, which is all about, you know, living out your fantasy. But mm. he's also kind of into dominating the woman to some degree mm. uh and and so i you know i'm not so much into that but at least the the more the free thinking and just breaking out of all these conventional uh you know sexual archetypes that were taught yeah was really really inspirational and again john norman that, still writes to this day it can be really helpful to read something that just totally takes you out of your comfort zone to absolutely. make you think about something in a different way that absolutely can, even if you don't completely agree with it it can be really helpful I want to mention a nonfiction book that I really liked, which was uh, Sex at Dawn. And it's, of course, very popular. You know, Chris Ryan is the author of that. And he's got a podcast and he's had this whole like scene that he he made like meetups for people who read the book, who want to meet other people who also uh, believe that monogamy is not necessarily like the natural thing for humans. And uh, that's an interesting it was a really interesting book because it turns not only like what you know about sex on on its head but also anthropology and like the nature of human beings are we peaceful or are we warlike and i think he makes a great case that we're very you know very peaceful yeah um, he compares us to bonobos and chimps yeah you know which are equidistant evolutionarily and that we are actually more like bonobos than right than chimps which have sex for social you know for social social for fun yeah for fun <laughs> right and for social bonding i think is what you're saying yeah there's a great book called The Guide to Getting It On. It's by Paul Jonides, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul, the real Dr. Paul. Yeah, he's got a podcast called 90 Seconds on Sex, and it's great. And I, I love, I love The Guide to Getting It On is just such a great book for anybody who's looking for an actual pleasure-based sex education. It's just got basic, basic stuff. And it's like the Kama Sutra for you know modern teenagers, right? They're looking for actual information about how to make sex feel good. That's where you find it. And it's very comprehensive. It's now like a thousand pages. It's got these cartoons in it that are like really cute and just they illustrate, you know, the issues that are being talked about in the book. Great book. Yeah, it's great because he just lays it out so matter-of-factly, talks about it not like it's crazy, not like this is something that's wrong. Yeah, he's so honest and not matter-of-fact and non-judgmental. Really, anyone can learn something from that book. And I think before the show wraps up, we better talk about sexual myths, because these books that we're mentioning, I think, probably help debunk some sexual myths for us. But there are a lot of sexual myths in culture that are very prevalent. And I would like to talk about some, because recently there was a cool article on Lifehacker that debunks 
sexual myths with science. So yeah. what, what better than that for Sex and Science Hour, right? <laughs> and just real quick, I want to say it's actually afterhours.lifehacker.com. It's a new... Uh, it's oh, a new I didn't site that, that. Yeah, it's a new site that they're doing where it's just NSFW's, you know, material. That's cool. All the time, which is great. Well, good for them. Um, I really like that concept. Because this is important to talk about. It absolutely is. And people want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So what are the biggest sex myths? Well, the first one they start out, out with is um, size matters, penis size matters. And every woman I've ever talked to about this is like, Average is best. <laughs> like, <laughs> if it's too big, it's hard to work with. <laughs> sure. You know? I, yeah, I really, I liked, this is the first one on there. I really like that because, the, I mean, a lot of guys feel really, really self-conscious about it. And, and I empathize To the point where them. they take drugs or they want to alter their bodies and you really don't need to. Yeah. You know, it's totally up to preference. Uh, there is, you know, some people say there's truth to the idea of what you do with it that matters. Right. And, and no matter, no matter what you are like i mean in the kama sutra they have this these sections about like where they they give people's genitalia like little nicknames based on how big or small they are and they do this with vaginas too it's not just penises right and they're they're talking about like well if you're a hare and a tortoise couple or something like yeah. that and you know and it's cute and they just kind of make a joke about it and that's what it is really like people come in all different shapes and sizes and no matter what your shape or size there's somebody who likes that yeah absolutely (laughs) just find that person there you go and you don't have to be in your so-called sexual peak because there really is no such thing as a sexual peak that's the second myth that you know this idea that oh well women reach their sexual peak in their 30s when men reach it at 18 oh it's nonsense that's nonsense yeah i mean maybe it's a convenient way to explain cougars and cubs but uh (laughs) no you know i think people like to talk about that and like to lay that out i don't think there's really a lot of scientific i mean there's scientific evidence to the degree of okay you stop developing at a certain point Mm -hmm. but i think any science that gets laid out about the sexual peak business is really just a nice way for people to say they're tired of the person they're married with Ooh, ouch that's an interesting theory uh what they say in this article is that don't worry about it there's no peak you can have fun at any age and as long as you're having fun does it really matter if it's the funnest fun or just fun you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like pizza right it's how is it like pizza even when it's bad it's good Oh, <laughs> well, if you're gluten free, then it's never good. But uh, anyway. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's one I really like. Women are more bisexual than men or more naturally bisexual. Oh, uh, come on. Th- there are bisexual men and bisexual women, but not everybody is bisexual. And I like to say this because there are myths out there. There's so many myths about bisexuals. It's probably the worst orientation. And I can say this because I'm one of those queers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I am a bi and I think it's the most misunderstood sexual orientation out there. There are so many myths about bi's. Like gay is getting to be known better by the mainstream and straight, of course. Okay, most people are straight, but bi is just it's tough. Um, well, bi can get hate from both sides. Yeah, it gets a lot of crap. Uh, but there are myths that some people say, well, everybody's bisexual and they're just in the closet or they don't know it. And then some people say nobody's bisexual. Everybody who claims to be bisexual is just really gay or they're straight and confused. Uh, and no, neither one of those are true. Some people are bi and actually probably more people are bi than identify as bi or than or that know it or admit it. But it's not everybody. Right. I have a little poem that I made up today that I'd like to, to share with the audience, if that's cool with you. Yeah, yeah, do it. Not everybody is queer. 
but more people are more queer than they appear. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But some men are bisexual too. And maybe it's a little more socially acceptable for women to express attraction to other women. There's kind of a stigma against guys doing it, but um, Kinsey's data, Kinsey was the famous sexual sexological researcher who asked people about their sexual habits and discovered that most people are freaks, even if they weren't necessarily talking about that. <laughs> he had the guts to ask and thankfully they had the guts to answer. Yeah, totally. And he found a lot of male bisexuality that was pretty much on par with the levels of female bisexuality. Even if those men didn't say, oh yeah, I'm bisexual, um, what they were doing showed that they did have some behavior that was pegging them as bisexual, if you will. Pegging them. Yes. (laughs) Okay, and the last myth that I want to talk about is great sex comes naturally. That is a myth. Do you agree with that, Brian? I would agree. Yeah, I think it takes a little bit of education, work, practice. It takes, Practice makes perfect, really. A lot of education, a lot of unique experiences, I mean, for really great sex, because everybody's everybody's different. Mm -hmm. You have to have such a broad knowledge to really be able to have great sex with, you know, multiple people or, you know, all the people you meet in your life. Or just focus on the person that you're doing it with right now. Yeah, even them have have just had tons of of unique, you know, little minutiae. Uh, in, in sex that they enjoy. Yeah, and you got to get to know each other and talk about what you like and know what you like so you can talk about it. So, yeah, absolutely, that's a myth. It doesn't just happen where uh, people know exactly what to do to please their partner. They actually have to talk about it. Imagine that. And we've been talking for too long. Speaking of talking, we have to end off the show now. Brian, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. As always, this has been the second episode of Sex and Science Hour. You can email us, show at sexandsciencehour.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. You can connect with us at sexandsciencehour.com. Game over. Play again next week. (laughs) 